What? How hard could it be? Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randalls. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hello again, this is Dan Godby, medical editor of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Thank you for joining us for the spring 2021 edition of the JSOM podcast, where we review and summarize a few select articles from our journal. A review of austere fluid warming technology from our first ever Naval Special Warfare guest reviewer. I especially want to remind everyone that the Special Operations Medical Association Scientific Assembly dates have been changed from its original dates in next month to now June 28th through July 2nd. We at the JSOM are always interested in hearing from our readership, especially those of you in the primary positions. And I'd like to reiterate our recently developed mentoring program specifically to help medics get through the publishing process. Now, once again, here's Josh and Alex with the podcast. Hey, Josh, welcome back to the spring edition, my friend. Yeah, how are you doing, Alex? Oh boy, this is 12 months plus that I'm sure we are all looking forward to putting in the rearview mirror. How about you guys out there? You know, we're doing okay. It's super wet. It's been raining a ton and and the the kids have been going crazy. Um but the goats have been fine. So, you know, small small blessings or small benefits, small somethings. I don't even know. <laughs> small goats. Small go- well they the goats are small. I mean, they're dwarf goats. It's <laughs> Hooray for small miracles. That's great. <laughs> Maybe we get into this fearless episode this month. Yeah. So <laughs> I hear you have some yeah, I hear you have some interesting uh some interesting case. An interesting case. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're still in lockdown, obviously, so everybody's got lots of free time to wax poetic, as you and I like to say. And so, you know, interesting not a case, but actually a case series here in my tertiary hospital where I'm doing emergency surgery. We have ended up seeing a not insignificant number of, um, I guess, uh, is there, there's gotta be a discovery show on plastic surgery gone wrong. Um, and so whatever that is, dun, 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 plastic surgery gone wrong. We've seen a bunch of that where we are. And it's, um, folks who during COVID have not been able to, uh, schedule elective surgery or who knows why. And so they're driving the 12 plus hours down to Mexico and getting plastic surgery done down in Tijuana. And, you know, lo and behold, that doesn't seem to be doing well. Um, (laughs) And so I'm getting called down in the middle of the night, not infrequently to go deal with these just catastrophic consequences of plastic surgery patients, uh, whether it be tummy tucks or implants or whatever the case may be. And, um, having to manage that without any knowledge about what actual surgery was done or what the plan was or any of that sort of stuff. And it got me thinking more about um, what you and I talked about ahead of time, which is that, you know, there's really a lot of parallels, I think, to deployed medicine in which everybody wants to do a bunch of trauma and they think they're good at trauma. 
Um, but really, we should consider ourselves, whether you're um, enlisted working out at the point of injury or back at the role two, that it's expected you are an expert at trauma. And also, you should be really, really good at everything else. And, and I was reminded of this recently on Doc Rush's podcast when he was talking about some PEDS cases and rotations. And the uh, PJ said he'd just done a couple of PEDS rotations through Doc Rush um, in New York and then went on a deployment, ended up seeing some PEDS patients and was still terrified of those PEDS patients, but felt better knowing that he had not just focused. And this, this data is absolutely reinforced either with Doctors Without Borders or the International Red Cross and with their surgical teams in war environments and about 60% of their surgical cases are OBGYN. Um, and so, you know, it, it was just a really nice reminder dealing with plastic surgery patients in the middle of the night. I'd rather be dealing with trauma, but we need to be good at everything, especially in the middle of the night when you don't have any other resources and nobody to call, because that's what we're expected to be as far forward medical providers. And really, so you bring up that point about the Doctors Without Borders statistic, the JTS CPG on austere surgical teams very expressly states that not all of our procedural concerns are going to be trauma concerns, especially if there is some element of treating um, local nationals with the team. And we don't, I mean, it depends on the medical rules of engagement and all that. But the surgeon that I, I typically work with, you'll bring up OBGYN complaints and that surgeon just like turns white and says nope not interested but unfortunately <laughs> like too bad like c-sections are a thing and and you need to be able to do them regardless of whether that was your chosen specialty or not it's the both the beauty and the curse of of dod medicine sometimes is that like you said it's expected you'll be good at trauma but you, you also better be good at all the other stuff that just sort of happens like it's it it matters yeah the yes and theory <laughs> Yes, and absolutely. <laughs> Moving into it, let's see. We got, I think, three great articles this month to review, and um, maybe you can lead us off. What have you got for us this month, Josh? So our first article is the Secondary Traumatic Stress and Emergency Services Systems, or STRESS Project, Quantifying Personal Trauma Profiles for Secondary Stress Syndromes in Emerging Medical Services Personnel with Prior Military Service. And this is by Dr. Ginny K. Renankovitz, I'm sorry, by the way, I messed your name up real bad, and Dr. Michael W. Hubble, both paramedics and PhDs. And so the purpose of this article was they were trying to create a personal trauma profile of EMS personnel with prior military service and evaluate the impact of military service on the presence of stress syndromes in the EMS population. And they employed a prospective cross-sectional study, and they used surveys, and their gap was that they could not identify any literature investigating if military service is protective or not of vicarious trauma, which you can read stress syndrome in EMS providers. So they invited 12 agencies in North Carolina, which nine participated, and of those nine, there were four rural, three suburban, and two urban. The subjects were recruited for monthly trainings and were provided 105 question surveys to fill out. Subjects were tested for stress syndromes of interest, including burnout, compassion fatigue, or vicarious trauma. After the subjects completed their testing, the researchers then performed hierarchical linear regression in order to determine what variables 
impacted the outcome of vicarious trauma as determined on their testing, especially on military personnel. So if any of you read this article and they get confused about hierarchical linear regression, I did a little bit of reading just to make sure that I knew what was going on. And so for the basis, a linear regression is essentially an attempt to create a line of best fit in a scatter plot of data. And it sort of gives you a sense of what, what you're looking at. When you do hierarchical linear regression, you take those lines of best fit and all those scatter plots and you stack them on each other and attempt to see which model changes the outcome with the most significance. Now, I know I harp on statistics, but frankly, I sometimes think I know just enough to be dangerous. So if there are any statisticians out there who hear my explanation and say, dude, you didn't even get close, please email us, heck, record something, and I will play it on our next podcast, and you can clear up all of the confusion that I just caused. But if you're interested in this, you should read about it. It's very interesting. On to their results. They had 764 subjects in total. 89 were veterans, or 11.6%. 496, or 64.4% of the total subjects were identified as having any of the three stress syndromes mentioned above. In the military pool, 61, or 71.8% of those subjects were identified of having those stress syndromes. Within the military population, they broke it down further into those who had actually engaged in combat or had been engaged by an enemy, or if the persons had reported conducting combat patrols or participating in other dangerous activities, if they were medics and other such areas of interest. The researchers attempted to provide a trauma profile of these EMS providers, but specifically focused on military members. For instance, they discovered that veterans who are EMS providers have higher rates of childhood trauma, as tested by their 10-item Adverse Childhood Experiences questionnaire. Also, veterans who are EMS providers who have experienced stressful events are more likely to have stress reactions. Now, when they went into the, the logistical regression, they made up several models to try to determine if these models affected the outcome of having a stress reaction. So they made four blocks. The first was of socio-demographic variables, which showed no major changes on the stress reactions. That's age, sex, and minority status. Their second block was occupational characteristics, including shift length, annual income, and years of field experience, which also did not have any significant impact on the outcome of stress reactions. However, when they added the third block, which was suicidality, or knowing an EMS provider who committed suicide, they did have a significant impact on their outcome modeling. And then when they added military characteristics, including years of service, prior history of combat deployment, and prior history of combat patrols or other dangerous duty and engagement with the enemy, this also had a significant impact on their out outcome of interest. Now, what is this trying to say? That's a lot of words that's trying to say that when they modeled the last two blocks, that those had more of an impact on the outcome of stress reactions than the first two blocks. They also went into further detail on individual characteristics, which you can read further in the paper. So this article is attempting to quantify something that is so multifactorial. It's so difficult, and I think it's very important. Both Alex and I have history in EMS, and I don't know about Alex, but I can tell you that I know personally one of my preceptors when I was in paramedic school several years later actually went on to take their own life. And EMS is extremely stressful, and you're going to have these stress reaction. It's going to have a negative impact on those people's lives. So it's, it's good that these researchers are trying to quantify that effect the best they can. 
So there are certain limitations and problems with this paper. Within the paper, they started making some comparisons. Most specifically, they often compared the stressed veteran population to the non-stressed entire population. I'm not sure that's comparing apples to apples as we would like. Now, Alex, I've rambled for quite a bit. What do you got to say? I see you've rambled for quite a bit. Uh, no, I think you did an outstanding job, and I'm so glad that we are now incorporating some of our uh, colleagues from EMS and some of their publications here. Like you, I read through this manuscript and, and had some questions that got brought up purely from an academic writing perspective, and so I do feel like they ended up trying to cover a number of topics without really sufficiently powering them. I was especially concerned about their sample size when they started getting into subgroup analysis for the populations of military members. I, I'm not sure that the small sample size is relevant or reasonable to draw conclusions. We have unfortunately been overlooking our NSW colleagues and finally have the opportunity to make up for that by inviting PJ Pelias, who is a SEAL medic, for his review. Hi, Alex and Josh. I want to first give you my appreciation for having me on the JSON podcast. This edition's article is Performance Characteristics of Fluid Warming Technology in Austere Environments, an individual case control study performed by Thomas Blakeman and his colleagues. A summary of the abstract. Soft medics and providers in austere environments may have to care for critically injured patients requiring fluid resuscitation that will inevitably become hypothermic if not corrected. Hyperthermia is a part of the lethal triad and will exacerbate resuscitation efforts. The requirement for appropriate equipment in austere environments, such as fluid warmers, to facilitate resuscitation is paramount. Fluid warming devices should have the ability to be portable operate on battery power, warm fluids to at least 32 or ideally 35 degrees Celsius, and perform under various conditions, including at altitude. This study evaluates four portable fluid warmers based on the mentioned metrics. In the methods, the four fluid warmers fielded in this study are the Belmont Buddy Light AC, the Belmont Buddy Leader, the MEC UM warmer system, and the Thermal Angel. Two different fluids were utilized, one liter of normal saline at room temperature and two units of cold packed red blood cells. Two different flow rates were studied, non-emergent flow of 125 milliliters per hour controlled with an IV pump and an emergent flow using a pressure bag inflated to 300 millimeters mercury. Two of each device was used with two tests accomplished at each flow rate. Measuring of the temperature of the fluids involved using a thermocouple and recording temperature data before entering the warmer and just prior to entering the simulated patient circulation. Battery life was recorded when the device indicator alarmed and or a decrease in fluid output temperature greater than one degree Celsius. These tests were all conducted in an altitude chamber and measured at three different altitudes, ground level, simulated 8,000 feet, and simulated 16,000 feet. Each device was set up per manufacturer's instructions and all preventative maintenance and calibration was performed prior to the study beginning. For the results, the data for emergent flow rate utilizing cold packed red blood cells to include plus or minus standard deviation is as follows. The M warmer produced a mean temperature of 30.5 degrees Celsius with a nine minute battery life. 
the thermal angel produced a mean temperature of 21.5 degrees Celsius with a 10 minute battery life. The buddy light produced a mean temperature of 15.5 degrees Celsius with a 47 minute battery life. The buddy leader produced a mean temperature of 12.3 degrees Celsius with a 74 minute battery life. In the results, the primary outcome gave favor to the M warmer in the fact that it produced the highest mean and peak temperatures for emergent flow rate of cold packed red blood cells. Secondary outcomes showed an inverse relationship between battery life and warming ability under emergent flow rates. The M warmer had the shortest battery life, but was most effective at warming cold fluids. The buddy leader had the longest battery life, but produced the lowest output temperatures. And in conclusion, none of the devices were able to heat normal saline or cold pack red blood cells to a mean temperature of 37 degrees Celsius at either flow rate. And in the author's words, altitude appeared to have a small effect on the output temperatures in some testing scenarios, but the differences were not clinically important. I really enjoyed that the authors utilized consistency from the other similar experiments and the selection criteria for their threshold target temperatures, which is based off of physiologic implications. The article noted that mortality can increase 40% in trauma patients if core temperature reached less than 34 degrees Celsius and 100% mortality if core temperature reaches below 32 degrees Celsius, giving rise to their selected threshold output temperatures of 32 and 35 degrees Celsius for this experiment. A remark of criticism for this article, I would have liked to see more data collected in between the two extremes for flow rates. The authors determined that the emergent flow rate in these devices will not produce a mean temperature of 37 degrees Celsius. Let's spend some more time collecting data on moderate pressure flow rates for these devices and see if they may produce a more physiological normal output temperature and explore what effects they could have on battery life. So what impact does this article have on soft medicine going forward? This paper effectively spotlights performance characteristics and limitations of current fluid warmers. I applaud the authors for creating well-produced research and its hopeful effect on the continued medical technology innovation. I appreciate the amount of data collected by the authors in this research. While I was only able to share a percentage of the data on this podcast, I highly recommend the reading of this paper. Brought to you by the E4 Mafia with their new Cloak of Invisibility. Have you ever noticed you ask an E4 for a quick task and they magically disappear? Thanks to our brand new E4 Cloak of Invisibility. Alright Josh, in this quarter I am bringing out another doozy just like yours. This is conversion of abdominal aortic and junctional tourniquet to infrarenal resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta is practical in a swine hemorrhage model. And this was written by Dr. Kyle Stigall, Perry Blow, Jason Rawl, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Kovar, who is vascular surgeon extraordinaire. Uh, this is an original research type of article. It's from a prospective three-arm animal study. In looking at level of evidence, I think this is a level four evidence, which is about grade C. And in going through the article in the introduction, the authors note that there are a number of methods of controlling pelvic and inguinal hemorrhage, and two of them are the AAJT and Reboa. They note that AAJT can be applied in the field, 
and is relatively easy and quick to apply even with limited training, but it has limitations such as damage to bowel, interference with respiration, and obstruction to surgical access. The authors then note that Reboa is more technically difficult to place, but may have fewer sequelae to the patient care, and we'll get into whether we agree with that or not. And then, as you have heard before, Josh, I have two important things that need to be in the introduction, and it is what is the gap in the literature that's been identified by the reviewers, and they do a really nice job of saying that, and it's specifically they note that there was a recent study that examined the transition from AAJT to a Zone 3 Reboa, but it in their words, did not include a realistic conversion, examination of laboratory parameters, or an extended period of observation. And the second thing that your academic article shall have in the introduction is the clinical question. And I think they did a wonderful job because it was just where it should be, which is the last sentence of the introduction. And they note that this study was designed to rigorously explore the consequences of conversion of AAJT to a Zone 3 Reboa in a clinically relevant translational model of severe hemorrhagic shock. And it's important, I think, that they note right off the bat for this that this was an animal study that was reviewed and approved by an appropriate animal research board, so kudos to them. Their methods are very well summarized in the attached figure one, which I would recommend everyone look at not only because it makes it easy to understand what they're doing, but just from writing an article, it was a really helpful figure to have there. They had a total of 18 male Yorkshire pigs weighing 70 to 90 kilos that were prepared in the usual and sterile fashion. And then they did something which I really haven't seen often before, which is they applied these near-infrared spectroscopy pads over the left pec muscle, the left flank, and the medial thigh. And this was used as a indirect measurement for pulse oximetry to determine when a muscle bed was essentially avascular. And then their methods were to provide a class 4 hemorrhagic shock, which is approximately 40% blood volume loss, which was reproduced through controlled shedding from the femoral artery over a total of 30 minutes. Immediately after the blood shedding, all animals had the AAJT applied and arterial occlusion was confirmed by a arterial waveform monitoring distal to the occlusion. Five minutes after the AAJT was applied, 500 cc's of shed blood were returned to the animal. And then 55 minutes after that, which would be at time of injury 60 minutes, the animals were randomly assigned to one of three arms. So the first arm was just leaving the AAJT in place, and they called this a continuous aortic occlusion. The second arm was deflating the AAJT and then placing a Reboa, and they called that a sequential aortic occlusion. And the third arm was keeping the AAJT inflated and in place while placing the Reboa, and they called that overlapping aortic occlusion. So after the animals had been randomized and the interventions placed, the animals were monitored for an additional 30 minutes. And at the end of that 30 minutes, an additional 500 cc's of blood was returned. And then essentially at minute 90, the interventions were removed, the AAJT and the Reboa in all three arms. And they were monitored for an additional three and a half hours with as needed Hextend and Crystalloid given to maintain the map for the study. 
And then when we get to the end of the method section, they specifically delineate their primary and secondary outcome. So the primary outcomes, and I know that's a problem, of the study were the ability to correctly place the Reboa and time of Reboa deployment. And then secondary outcomes included survival, hemodynamic monitoring of blood pressure and tidal CO2, heart rate, and markers of tissue damage, which they defined as lactate, BUN, creatinine, pH, potassium, and myoglobin. So for results, they had a total of 17 animals. One was not included, and they did not specify why. So the continuous aortic occlusion had five animals. The overlapping aortic occlusion had six animals, and the sequential aortic occlusion had six animals. There was no difference between their baseline map, which was approximately uh, 63 with a heart rate of 94. And then after all of them had their uh, hemorrhage applied, they all had a similar map of 41 with a heart rate of 155. After 60 minutes, all of the animals had been treated exactly the same, and their map was about 67 with a heart rate of 174. The Reboa in the two arms was placed with no significant difference in time of application, which was 4.2 minutes. And then at the end of the intervention time, all of them had 500 cc's of blood returned, and across the board, the map increased by about 15 millimeters of mercury. So in the results, what they note is there is no significant differences in survival, blood pressure, or laboratory values that were found following intervention. Conversion to Reboa was successful in all animals, but one in the overlapping aortic occlusion group when they accidentally cannulated the vein. They did note some significant differences in the sequential group when the AAJT was taken down and then after that the Reboa was put in place and their postulation was that that allowed for what we all worry about which is the reperfusion syndrome. So lactate went up, CO2 went up. Their conclusion is that conversion of AAJT to infrarenal Reboa is effective with each technique having physiologic advantages and disadvantages. Placement of Reboa catheter in the presence of an inflated AAJT can make accessing the femoral artery difficult, potentially resulting in improper cannulation. So that was the author's take on the paper. I would like to say the strengths of this paper is that it was a well-organized paper. The methods were very well organized, and it was based on an existing validated animal model framework from authors who have done this extensively using one of the military's animal labs. In my opinion, it was also a well-organized clinical question that directly relates to soft medical practice and is one of those nice translations of role one to role two care. The weaknesses, and this is not a criticism, this is just a academic evaluation of the paper. So this was a preclinical animal model, and in looking at the level of evidence, it specifically says at the base of the pyramid of medical evidence is animal research and laboratory studies. This is where ideas are first developed. As you progress up the pyramid, the amount of information available decreases in volume, but increases in relevance to the clinical setting. So this is an animal model. This is absolutely not ready for human prime time. And in my opinion, a conclusion that this is safe and effective is very premature. The other weaknesses to this study, and the authors did a nice job pointing this out, this is a porcine model. 
And Josh, as you and I know from our animal studies, porcine models have a huge amount of collateral vasculature in the abdomen, which actually makes them a relatively poor surrogate for Reboa placement. And so it's really not an apples to apples when you're looking at Reboa versus AAGT in the porcine model. And then my last point is that this is a dramatically underpowered study to identify complications with only five or six animals per arm. And I would consider this more as a pilot study really than a definitive uh, conclusion. So with that, Josh, what do you have to say about it? Absolutely nothing that you haven't already said. Cool. Well, <laughs> let's... Uh... <laughs> There's your first. Mistake. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, you 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 clarified it pretty well. It's they were attempting to show that you could do this. I think they did show that in this benchtop fashion or this animal sort of fashion that that you can. And I think it's something that at least it's been considered, so it's out there. Especially if we start seeing the AAJT or even any of the other external Reboas, shall we call them, come through. I mean, it's an important thing to know that it can be done. Let's start talking about the. Quality assessment checklist from our friends over at the University of Oxford Center of Evidence-Based Medicine. And which checklist are we going to use for this one? I believe this is the randomized control study checklist. Hit me, bro. Was the assignments of patients to treatments randomized? Yes. Were the groups similar at the start of the trial? Yes. Aside from the allocated treatment, were the groups treated equally? Yes. Were all patients who entered the trial accounted for? Uh, they said that one was dropped, but they didn't say why. And I'm going to ask the author about that a little bit later, actually. Well, then I'll ask the second question. And were they analyzed in the groups which they were randomized? Yeah, and I think this is actually a really great point for some of our listeners out there because I'm only just starting to realize the significant statistical derivation that you can do from intention to treat when a patient is randomized to one group but put in another and then still analyzed in the first group. So that's kind of a fun thing to read. Were measures objective or were the patients and clinicians kept blind to which treatment was being received? So yeah, their measurements were very objective, but it, just because of the nature of the study, they could not be blinded. Although the pigs might have been. They were out cold. <laughs> and to answer some of our questions from this manuscript, we have the pleasure of the first author, uh, who is a friend of yours and mine, Josh. So welcome to the show, Dr. Kyle Stigall, who is a surgical resident at BMC and was kind enough uh, to get with us after what sounds like a pretty grueling trauma shift. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And it sounds like this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart with uh, some of your plans after graduation. Is that right? That's right. I'm hoping to apply for the special operations surgical team after residency. That sounds awesome and definitely directly applicable to your manuscript. So with that said, let's get into some of the questions that we and some of the readers had after reading through it. Uh, so first off, we note that the intent of the study was to see if conversion of an AAJT to Reboa would be practical to prevent damage from prolonged AAJT application. How do you define prolonged use? In reviewing the FDA approval, we found that it was only approved for a maximum of 60 minutes. 
And the JTS CPG for Reboa notes that outcomes for zone 3 Reboa are optimized if occlusion time is 30 to 60 minutes. It makes us wonder about the benefit of your study that looks beyond 60 minutes. Right. In, in our paper, we considered prolonged AAJT to be AAJT times greater than 30 minutes. By placing a AAJT Reboa, it, it's not without its own risk. And so those risks are going to be complications from external compressions that's needed a significant amount of pressure on the aorta, uh, respiratory arrest caused by intra-abdominal compression, and then surgical site obstruction from the device itself. Our goal was by transitioning from the AAJT to the Reboa, these complications could be mitigated and allow release of that external compression and improved access to surgical sites within the abdomen and the groin. Additionally, the risk of bowel injury in some studies was as high as 50% in protocols where AAJT occlusion was on for 60 minutes. We did have a control arm in which the AJT arm or AJT was left in place for 90 minutes. So we did look at AAJT uh, in place for greater than 30 minutes as well. Okay, that's helpful. And next off, you note a 1 in 6 complication rate, which is about 17% in the overlapping aortic occlusion group because of incorrect cannulation of the vein instead of the intended artery. Your complication rate was obtained while the procedure was performed in a controlled clinical environment. Would you expect the procedure failure rate to be worse in a tactical or field environment? That is very possible, and it is why we wanted to include this data in our study. As you said, our protocol was completed in a controlled environment without the stressful and often hectic environment associated with the presentation of polytrauma patients. The compression of the aorta presents difficulty when assessing the femoral artery as there is no flow within it while the AAJT is in place. However, this complication uh, was not found to be significant. It is possible that our study was not powered sufficiently to elucidate such a difference and further studies would be warranted. Either way, this is a downside of the Reboa application while the AJT is deployed and something providers should be aware of. Yeah, what a great point. And I think you and the authors also listed that in the limitations that this uh, numbers in your study was actually small enough that maybe this would be more appropriately considered a, a pilot study really more than a definitive conclusion. And so in the method section, we see no discussion of visual examination of bowel for tissue damage. This metric is discussed in the results section. What measure method of grading was used to evaluate this metric? And why wasn't a histological examination of the bowel performed? After the swine were euthanized, a laparotomy was immediately performed to assess the bowel. The laparotomy was performed by surgeons who were trained at identifying dead or injured bowel. While this is a subjective measurement, ischemic or non-viable bowel is obvious, and especially to trained medical professionals. There was no evidence of even minimal bowel injuries within any of the animals. And so we felt that a grading system of bowel damage was not necessary. And similarly, that histologic examination of grossly viable non-injured bowel would likely have been unproductive and thus not completed based on our time and resource constraints. You got it. Okay. 
Uh, and then also in the results section, it was noted that one of the animals in the continuous aortic occlusion group was excluded due to an iatrogenic injury during surgical preparation. What was that injury, and would it be relevant to Reboa application in a field patient? The injury was a laceration of the carotid during placement of the catheter sheet for invasive blood pressure monitoring. This injury was all during the setup of the patient prior to insertion of the Reboa catheter. During this injury, several hundred milliliters of blood was lost. And on top of that, we tried to salvage the patient, but the animal never recovered. This injury really had nothing to do with the Reboa project itself. And so we did not include its uh, numbers in our study. Ah, that's helpful. Good to know. Thanks. And then I'm curious about what prompted the use of the NEARS measurements. That was seems like an intriguing component of your study. We wanted to measure the tissue oxygenation distal to the aortic occlusion in order to assess any difference in the efficacy between either the AAJT or the Reboa. In our study, it showed us that there was no difference and that there was occlusion in both cases. We liked the NEARS monitoring because it was non-invasive. However, in previous studies that our research group has done, it's not shown any significant differences over more conventional methods, such as blood pressure or pulse ox in measuring blood flow to the distal extremities. One last question for you. This actually seems like a practice that's directly applicable to soft medicine, and I'd be curious if you would think if some of our soft medics interested in research might have a role in projects like this with you in the future. Yes, definitely. Uh, I think the insight they can bring would be incredibly helpful and in, in definitely putting their experience inside these projects, having placed these in the field, uh, would be very beneficial for our studies. Well, Doctor, thank you so much for your time and insight, and uh, appreciate all the work that you do there at BAMC, both for our injured service members and our citizens in the area, and look forward to seeing you out in the field soon. Thank you. Appreciate your time. And a reminder that Josh and I are here to help soft medics teach soft medics about soft medicine, and the only way we can do that is with you, the soft medic. Please reach out podcast at jsomonline.org if you are interested in helping. In particular, we have an upcoming podium presentation at SOMSA 2021 in which we need interested soft medics to take five minutes to present a recently published article. We've got a number of them already listed, have uh, templates, and are more than willing to help. But we want to see you teach your colleagues about important soft medicine. All right, all. You all stay safe downrange, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much. We'll see you then, brother. This is Sophia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSOM. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter on our website at jsomonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers and welcome your feedback and suggestions.
This is Colonel Shackelford from the Joint Trauma System reminding you to submit your DD-1380 and TC-3 AAR to JTS after the mission.